How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 247. I don't have a quote for you, Zeke. You don't? I apologize. Like, actually? No, but I do have a fun fact regarding the, the number. 247. Indeed. Well, okay. if, you, if you flip those last two digits, 274, you get the number of days it took to film the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Whoa, that's pretty Whoa, clever. Oh, man. That was pretty clever. That was as close as I could get. <laughs> I like that, though. I like that. I'll um, take that. How are you, Jake? I'm good. I'm excited to be wrapping up this trilogy. It's yeah. the first time ever on this podcast. We're nearly 250 strong. Mm-hmm. That we've done a back-to-back-to-back trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably... And, I mean, to be honest, it's probably not... We've, we've debated, we talked about the Harry Potter, how we do something like that, and whether yeah. we do that, or Star Wars even, but it's kind of hard to do Star Wars now, because mm-hmm. we've already done the OG Star Wars. We did, Yeah, we did A New Hope and Rise of Skywalker, the two random ones. But then also, you got like Toy Story, we've done one and four. So it's yeah. like some, some of them are just a bit strange the way we've tackled them, but it's because of the release yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And then and this is the first trilogy we've uh, completed since mm. the before trilogy. Yes. Um, but to be fair, that we had a very good reason to split those up nine episodes yes. apart each. Yeah, there was that was intentional. Yes. That's a very good pickup. Uh, well, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? Oh, well, I've, I've got a fun fact about the film as well. Oh, you've got a fun fact? i got, I got double trouble over here, Zeke. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> don't don't mess with me. <laughs> Is it Viggo Mortensen broke his toe? Oh damn it! You got me good. No, it's okay. Right. <laughs> I think I think between us we've mentioned that at least six times in the last yes. few weeks, <laughs> including the episode before the Fellowship of the Ring. But uh, no, I thought this was. In- I didn't know this. Okay. And I have to assume this is the only film with in which this is the case ever made. Okay. So, of course, the Return of the King. Wins a million Oscars. Well, 11. Yes. Close enough. If we play with numbers again like I did earlier, that could account. But uh, this is the, I would imagine, the only film that was still filming after it won the Best Picture Academy Award. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason this is, and I told someone the fact of this the other day, and they were very confused, even after I explained it. Uh, Of course, we're talking about the extended editions of the films, which I guess... Uh, are re- released with the DVD. So they weren't obviously available during the theatrical release. Okay. Uh, there were still shots being done. I think Sir Peter Jackson was getting shots of the falling skulls and the paths of the dead scene. I guess like close-ups of the skulls mm-hmm. falling towards the end of that sequence. Uh, that was exclusively for the extended DVD version of the films, which of course is the version I'm assuming we both watched. Absolutely. Uh, as we did for the last two weeks. Yep. Um, but yeah, and P- so Peter Jackson did sort of comment about that. He said it is kind of nice to be still shooting a film that has already won the Best Picture Oscar. <laughs> I think that's a phenomenal fact. I think I... that's fantastic. Yeah, that's gonna be pretty hard to top. But well, you can try. I, w- I will attempt it. <laughs> I will attempt it. Look, um, that's a, that's obviously a really cool one. There's there's plenty of little fun ones, but one thing we we haven't talked too much about. Um, or at least not in excessive detail, is, yes. is, is John Reese davies We talked about, mm. um, you know, sort of the fact that he was voicing a character and playing a character in Two Towers. Yes. Didn't get too much... We talk, sort of talked about how Gimli and Legolas are very much kind of placeholder race-related uh, characters in, in the Fellowship, especially. Right. They're, they're, um, 
they're often they're just sort of they don't have an arc. They they're kind of just there and they're they're they likeable. They kind of represent their own people. Yes, like Gimli represents the dwarfs. Legolas represents the elves. Jake yes. represents all people with autism. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's the exact same thing, Zeke. Well, what's surprising <laughs> to know is obviously um, John Reese Davies doesn't look like a dwarf in real life, and sure. actually had to wear a prosthetic face, and unlike a lot of characters, the orcs mm. in particular, but. No one had to consistently wear it as much as Gimli, the right. dwarf that has gone through the whole thing. And um, well, it's quite funny because he absolutely hated wearing this because it I irritated him. It used yeah. to break out in rashes. And at the end of principal photography for Gimli, he did the he did what all good actors did. He kept the face mask. He has it in his own room, um, much like what Pedro Pascal has in the unbearable weight <laughs> of massive talent. Um, <laughs> With Nicolas Cage, but of course, no, he didn't do that. He burnt it to oh, a crisp. Very, and very a cinder. good. I read quite a few. There were a lot of like different cast members getting rid of certain things that their characters had. Like mm. there was that, but then I, I think there was another thing that that um Sean Astin got rid of that he had as well. I'm not. And now, the feet. Oh, the feet. Interesting. Because they were like. Really quite annoying to walk in. You would know this. Are there any shots where they like, it's just their normal feet? They left it in shot? None? No, they were actually very, very good because Mm. they would, obviously, they're they're pretty well known that there are obviously the very normal, um, the normal sized hobbits. Yes. So Dominic Monaghan, Billy Boyd, Elijah Wood, Sean Astin. Who are all ranging between I think five eight and like five eleven. They're not super tall, but they're all right. Oh, I think Elijah Wood's five six. Yeah, so they're not yeah. like yeah, very um, tall people. But obviously, they all had <laughs> they all had um, obviously mini them's mini me. Yes, yes. Um, they all had uh, obviously doubles. dwarf doubles, and yeah, no, they were very concise about making them look. And I don't think there's many shots where it kind of looks a bit janky, but. Um, I'm always constantly impressed with the force perspective stuff and the the switching in their sizes and because like a lot of that yeah, when you no, when you see very both digital shrinking there's not a lot of digital shrinking no and and like when you do see the shots where you can see clearly both actors in their faces it's like well that has to be composited and it's really flawless a lot of the compositing in this film like, yeah. I'm w- watching it carefully there was one little composite in the Return of the the Ring that I, uh, Return of the King my goodness. Although it was Frodo returning the, the ring to Mount Doom, is the wide shot that like kind of pans up towards the end of the Doom. It's uh or the end of the mountain. You see Frodo Frodo running into oh, yeah, the that, doorway. That's very clearly yeah. I was like ah oh, yeah okay this one. That one less than flawless. Kind of hilarious that one to be <laughs> honest. He's just like running on the spot and getting smaller. And yeah, it does not look good. No. Oh well, that was one I noticed this. Which time, is weird but... because like that shot feels like that's way easier than the whole final sequence that occurs in in mount doom between uh sam frodo and and, and gollum i guess yeah, it's I... much easier to sort of follow along and it's it's engaging yeah. and stuff it's weird that that little composite shot is, is well, i'm sure i'm sure there's a reason because it's like we don't know what you know what which what order the shots were done and which ones were assigned to which cg yeah. artist or you know, I'm sure there's like a reason why that one just kind of looked a little like, okay, they ran out of time. Yeah, maybe it was also a very tight schedule, like we're saying. Yeah, you know, oh, eight months of principal photography and and 
just non-stop for nearly four years over the the whole three films so yeah no we we certainly can't blame him but we we are getting right deep into the conversation yeah. like let's let's readjust ourselves i'm gonna ask you the same question you asked me a moment ago mm. that i refuse to answer yeah at least until you answer it what have you been watching in the last week yeah look i've caught a couple of things so i did manage to catch something in the cinema this week oh, gone very by good. um uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was a plane film. I think it was definitely a plane film. I did catch Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, so with this. The Haunting of Venice coming out in cinemas in the last mm. couple of weeks, I did go catch that. But before that, I had to catch Death on the Nile. Or oh, the so death you... of the cancelled actors. <laughs> um, it's a murderer's row of... Uh... It is genuinely yeah. hilarious how that particular film out of the three, which is distinctively the worst of the three for okay. different reasons not because there's a bunch of people that aren't very nice people in it right um you're talking about the actual like film film itself and what i found really interesting at least the first two i haven't checked murder on the orient express but i'm pretty sure all three of them are directed by kenneth Branagh. they are indeed there you go i only realized that a few weeks ago um and who obviously plays um poro the main pro detective the, the, protagonist. the detective the the detective and is he as good as benyard blanc though Different. Different, okay. I would say. I actually do think I like... Oh, that's a toughie which one I prefer as a detective. Oh, okay. Probably Poro. I think it's the classic uh, the classic vibe. Right. But I do like the Benyard, the Benoit Blanc, sort of, the, the, the southern f- crass yeah, accent. Yeah, yeah. The flashiness. Um, His swimsuit. But they're both very flashy. Oh, that's true. Fair, that's true. In their um, sort of look. But... What was interesting between the three films, and I remember being like, the first one was a good film. Mm. It wasn't like a great film. It was a good film. I think it came three and a half. It had a really engaging plot. I think Murder on the Orient Express as a book is, is, a, is just a great whodunit mm. mystery novel. Obviously, they're all Agatha, based off Agatha Christie yep. sort of uh, whodunit um, novellas. And it was good. And I think the cast was really good. The twist was really good. The The, the structure of it was a little bit more... It was just blocked nicely. Whereas mm. the second film, it's paced. It's got a real pacing issue. It really doesn't complement um, Paul Rowe. As a, this, he's this detective that can just solve everything and is very right. quick to kind of click on things. Um, and the important thing is, in the first film, there's only one... There is a murder on the Orient Express. There's right. not... There's been a murder. There's not murders. And Death on the Nile has has a lot of deaths mm. in it, which really begs the question, it's like he's not very good at his job. In fact, <laughs> and it, the writing, <laughs> in particularly in Death on the Nile, is, is quite frustrating because yep. he basically rinses and repeats, but he doesn't... By the end of every scene with every suspect, he just accuses them of being the murderer, basically. <laughs> like, like directly. Like, it's he like just playing goes, like, L.A. Noir. He's like, you, yeah, you You're, are. You did it. I you, doubt. Doubt. You, yeah. <laughs> you got, you've got, yeah, pretty much. And that's basically how every scene escalates and it rinses oh, okay. and repeats for about 40 minutes. Uh, because the first murder doesn't happen. It's a, oh, just over two hour film. It's a long feeling film. We didn't get the first murder until an hour in. Jeez, yeah. So it's like, it's 
has all of this build and all of this and it doesn't allude to any suspects it honestly is they just go on a trip to they're in egypt and we just kind of go around egypt and we watch army hammer dry humping gal gadot for like the first nice hour (laughs) cancel one and cancel two um (laughs) while russell brand's even better even better um, the full film ages like fine wine, Zeke. I know. <laughs> I was kind of laughing how hilarious it was to see oh, this many no. cancelled uh, people in one film. But it, yeah, it it just has a real pacing issue. Like I said, um, there there feels like there's no intellect or wit. Mm. Um, with only a few redeeming scenes, but nothing too great, to be honest. Um, I actually picked who was the murderer in the first oh. 10 minutes, which, to be honest, like, literally in the first maybe 20 minutes of the film, I was like, it's going to be them. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm not very good at this whodunit stuff, so the fact that I right. could pick that that early, I was already worried. It's funny, because there's a film we're going to mention later that... Like you, I am very... It's not even that I'm bad at predicting. It's just I don't tend to do it. I just watch films and sort of enjoy it. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, I've got a lot to say about a perhaps a predictable plot for a film I saw. So yeah. I get exactly where you're coming from. But then... And, and what's interesting is, is seeing that Branner in the first film, it was kind of made around the time that people really liked those really big, long one-takes, you know, mm. in the post-Burman. It came out in 2017. So it's come off the... He feels very much with these three films, it, it almost feels reactionary to the, the the time in which they were made. But Well, that, yeah, that's probably more an ode to the original Murder on the Orient express because having that had a lot of really maybe not like sweeping shots but those had really long takes as just sort of rest of the camera on mm. on a stage play essentially yeah um and then these really long continuous shots and death on the nile actually just feels kind of neutered it doesn't have really mm. any artistry or anything it just feels like shots it's weirdly sort of blocked it almost feels like sometimes to points it feels like covid blocked but it was before covid so it oh really interesting was it before s- covid it wasn't shot during COVID. Interesting. I think it got released around COVID kicking off, and it okay. was lost kind of in that, the noisy shuffle. And, of course, sure. a lot of the, the actors and actresses on it were uh, very naughty. Um, <laughs> but what, this is what made Haunting Venice so weird, because I didn't know mm. what to expect. And, yeah, and, so this is the one that's out in cinemas right now, Yeah. Correct? Yep. Um, and this is the one where, basically, at this point, Poro is he's retired, he's not doing it. Of course, Tina Fey goads him into basically coming to this haunted house mm. um this one was a lot of fun the cast is is quite good it, it definitely had a completely different stylism and feel to it which is cool because as a from a directing point of view it it, it wasn't just like i'm going to do the same thing i've done in the, the first two films mm. which are serviceable and poor I'm going to do something that reflects kind of the direction this book's going through mm. or this was what is based off, which is the fact that there has been a murder in this, there's been a death in this house, a suicide, suicide. Yeah. Quotations, um, yeah. And it's on Halloween night and it's very much got this like spooky ghost aspect to it. And of course yep. the, the detective doesn't believe in ghosts, doesn't believe in the supernatural. Ooh, spooky. Now, what was really interesting was like, yeah, just like the, the, there were these, rather than doing these long continuous wides or these sequences that like feel more stage play esque, it's like, yes, this technically could do something like that in that stage play aspect. 
but it didn't. It was incredibly tight framing. I'm talking medium close-ups, close-ups, very disjointed, lots of Dutch tilts, like ridiculous. Mm. It went full, like there is something supernatural weird. I want you to feel claustrophobic and uncomfortable this whole time. Interesting. And you're in this. And it, it works. Yeah. It definitely sticks it for that. And it has an interesting and compelling enough whodunit, um, which kept me... Guessing for the most part, I, I still think I'd probably prefer Orient on, or Murder on the Orient Express out of right. the three. But it was a it was a cool it was a nice film to go to. It was only a hundred minutes too, so it didn't oh, over nice. nice and tight. We went into went in at six fifteen, came out at eight thirty. I was so happy. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're like I'm happy to be out of here. <laughs> like it's not really late. I get to go home and um. Yeah, it was pretty. It was a sound to good film, I think. It was yeah. interesting to see the stylism evolve. I think that was the important sort of takeaway from it. And look, it's open to a fourth one. There's so many Agatha Christie film uh, yeah. books, so you literally could make twenty of them, and people would probably still go to them because yeah. they're an easy. You can pick them up. You don't have to watch all of them. Would you say? And I, I'm kind of I don't know where to go with for this because we did now see how I run. Is it see mm. how I run? Yeah. About a, what a year ago when it, I don't even remember when that came out. Um, it's about a year ago. That 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 didn't really feel as experimental. You would think of like an Agatha Christie. Like it felt very like much like an ode to it. Mm. And it it sounds like these Kenneth Branagh ones are as well. And then I guess you got the Knives Out side of it which are a little more subversive and like modern quote unquote well they're, they're trying to challenge yeah like those those archetypes and those stereotypes like mm. your stereotypical yeah I'd say they're more traditionalist in okay. their approach yeah. and that's a good thing because not everything has to reinvent the wheel and, and sure. to be honest it's like it's the debate with Glass Onion I, some people like it and I do not like it mm. I love Knives Out uh, and this is my this is the Ryan Johnson like I like that he's challenging, but we need to accept that that's going to be met sometimes with, mm. like it's fine to be like I'm going to challenge everything, but then you need to accept that half the time you're probably not going to hit it out of the ballpark, and then it kind of like to me having perfect like identical twins coming in and stepping in. I think that that's. Not subverting, I think that right. that's lazy. I feel like that's lazy writing, or like yeah, I definitely think Glass Onion has, and we said it when we reviewed that film, a lot of soap opery elements to it, which could I think is the biggest part of the visit. Not even the idea of like challenging what we understand these whodunits to be, and and making it super modern and contemporary. And look, oh look, it's Elon Musk is like the villain sort of character, but the soap opery elements of just like I can understand audiences being almost insulted by that. Yeah. Because it is something that, oh, that's what Bold and the Beautiful does. <laughs> yeah. Actually, just, I don't think Bold and the Beautiful ever did a, a secret twin sister plotline. You know, and... So I understand it. I get It's the that. finale when he's saying, like, he's got, like, this smarminess that it's just, everything's just dumb. And you're like, well, yeah, this is dumb. This whole... I've wasted two hours watching this kind Aww. of dumb plot <laughs> unfold. Check it's, out our Glass Onion uh, discussion. Yeah. For more. And I haven't warmed to it. I just haven't. Fair I'll just enough. watch Knives Out again. I'm actually keen because um, I was telling you off the show, Z, Kirsty, I got it. She's got, she downloaded Letterboxd. 
Yes. And I wasn't I wasn't very pushy or anything. I just kind of started suggesting it random. She's like, you know what? I think I would be into I think she was scared because she hasn't watched a lot of movies. Mm. But once you download it, you start going through the list. You're like, oh, actually, I've seen quite a few films. She logged like 150, mm. like right off the bat. And now she's authentically excited about like watching more films and logging them. And so I've, I've, I've done a good job, it seems, Zeke. But the thing she's generally really excited about, because she watched the first chunk of Glass Onion mm-hmm. on a family holiday. And I think like her uncle was the one that was just like, ah, this is crap, turn it off. So she wanted to watch more, but then they, they turned it off and did something else that night. So I'm excited to introduce her to Knives Out and Glass Onion. Excellent. Have you caught anything in the last week? I have. I caught a couple of things. I'll very quickly and briefly discuss The Big Bang Theory, because I have finished it. <laughs> I got through all 12 seasons, Zeke. Thank God. Um, well, how, was, how, was, how was your beige food? Hmm. <laughs> Look, it's, I mean, we, we joked about it weeks ago. It was a checkbox. It was, I wanted to get it off my TV time score. So I watched season seven through 12 and, and it, you kind of do, your brain does get a bit of mush when you just consume that much of it and it becomes yeah. a task. But I would just make a few notes. And what was it the Fellowship of the Rings episode where I first talked about Big Bang Theory? Or was it the yeah. week before that? Oh, it might've been the week before that. Yeah. It was I think co- the, the first thing before you go through those notes that I'd ask you is, What's the driving question in the second half of the show? <laughs> Can you see my notes from here? No. No? Okay, well, my first note is, I guess the overarching arc of the show was not Leonard and Penny's relationship and getting together, um, which once they get married at the end of, like, season eight or I think start of season nine, there's, like, they rela- there's, no, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go until they just shoehorn in the final episode. Oh, by the way, she's pregnant. And that that's their arc for the last, you know, Three seasons. 80, 80 episodes or whatever it is, yeah. It's insane. No, I think the arc, it makes a lot more sense if you look at it from Sheldon's point of view as someone who's, like, learning to accept change and, and um, because, you know, when you meet him in the first episode and, and the earlier seasons, he's very, um, what's it called? I'm trying to think of a nice way to put it. <laughs> well, he's, he's stubborn. He's, he's stubborn and stuck in his ways and, and, you know, that can be endearing and whatnot, but then... Yeah, I guess it becomes more annoying for the people around him. and But I, I do like that was more of an emphasis in the last few seasons about him coming more out of his shell as he, he gets together with Amy. They eventually get married. He starts having sex, which is, I guess, by season nine is where the plot is going to go. The, these shows have, and we talked about it weeks ago, far too focused about sex and not enough about nerd culture. And, 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 that, and obviously I mean, developing characters that have more dimensions to them. I, I think yeah. that... That show in particular is, I'm sorry, but is so shallow in comparison to the the shows so around the, it. Exactly, yeah. Like um, I think about Lennon and Penny's, like the scene with the 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 episode when they get married, and I compare it to the wedding episode for Jim and Pam in the office. I'm like, oh my god, it's night yeah. and day. And I know people that that wouldn't even be their go to example. It would be a well, different show. I, I would, I'd argue it's like you know, 100 percent the Jim and Pam one is very endearing, but it's like. You know, you go, Eva, I would say Brooklyn Nine-Nine has more complex and emotionally driven characters. And, you know, like that wedding with um, Jake and and Amy is like, uh, like that's compelling or community Mm. or how I met your mother. Like, Jesus, it's like... The show's just built up those core relationships really well. And I'm saying this, I've only seen The Office out of the examples you've given, but I totally believe that they've built them well. And with with this one, it's just kind of like... All the characters are so mean spirited that you just 
you don't really care. And it's anticlimactic. They're going to get married, but they're both very shallow about it because, like, he admitted he once sort of half-cheated on her with this other girl. So they just, like, found a way to add drama to it for no reason. And oh, it's Sheldon and Amy. Oh, for um, Leonard and oh, Penny. Okay. But, like... But, yeah, but then even to take it to the, the Amy and Sheldon thing, like, that was a much more satisfying, like, build-up of their relationship and then they get married. And then the end of the series is they win the Nobel Prize, which I think is quite a fitting thing. It's like, oh, well, that they were together on it and Sheldon's accepting an award, not by himself, but with a partner... And he acknowledges his friends in his speech. He's like, okay, that all makes sense. That all tracks to me. But there are so many other elements of it. Like you said, just the unsatisfying aspect of the way the relationships came together. Or the fact that even almost every single main character has the same arc. Where they get married and quote-unquote grow up. It's like, Howard and, and his wife, they get married and have kids. Lennon and Penny, they get married and are now about to have kids. Sheldon and Amy, they are married, and according to the Young Sheldon Wikipedia page, I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to watch Young Sheldon, uh, they're going to have kids as well. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. they couldn't think of any other way to... Well, they're nerds. They're into comic books. There was one episode where they fought about funding and buying the comic book store. I was like, oh, that's great. Like That's such an interesting different angle, and now they're going to be on that side, and nope, goes nowhere. They don't do it, and then the show goes back to... They live... Yeah. sad back lives back with their the wives and- <laughs> because the reality is and this is the sad part it's is like, oh, damn and this this probably comes back to the shallow nature of particularly these Chuck Lorre um, shows yeah. is in the first episode they went there are these four really nerdy physicists or um, yeah. like these MIT people one of them's Jewish one of them's Indian one of them's uh, got like some form of intellectual dis like yeah. disability apparently they actually came out and said that he Sheldon doesn't have autism I was like oh okay <laughs> that's interesting that's really odd if they just shut their mouths and let that sort of manifest you know so, what I mean it's, so it's what like is it's he? the is same way socially... that the Babadook became like a gay icon for people like let 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 these movements happen let the audiences create fresh meanings behind this so, so now, now Sheldon's just, I genuinely, just weird for no reason. <laughs> so he is just genuinely socially I, inept. Basically. I guess so. Yeah. That's just his thing. He's just socially odd. Okay. It's so weird that they 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 took something that the audience is like, like added knee- to yeah, it. Yeah, you just kneecapped that, yourself. Exactly. As like, oh, okay. Because it's so interesting. Because that's the. It's like um in Community, in the first episode, there's a character Abed who's yep. like really into movies but in the first episode they're like he's got Asperger's right like, straight away and it's like from there and they obviously it's very blunt in the pilot and it definitely they smooth the edges over the course of right. the show but it becomes like whenever Abed does something you're like oh okay but it becomes so in the background because everyone becomes kind of weird and strange in the whole green, I see yeah green oh it's brilliant it's just it's brilliant um, can't wait for that movie. <laughs> that movie is getting done on this show. Oh, there you go. You're going to have to watch all the community now to do it. Let's right. do it. You, you can just come to my house and we'll watch it. I'll watch the whole show again. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but no, that's great. I mean, that's the, if that's the best we get is he comes out of his show a little bit. I'm not going to watch 12 seasons to see No, that. you certainly don't. And I started thinking towards the end. Actually, I had a conversation with a couple of friends the other day. I think they were talking about well, One Piece or how, like, a friend of theirs was watching, like, an abridged version of One Piece and that reminded me that there is the abridged version of Dragon Ball Z where they basically, they cut the show in half 
they're like, oh, here are the episodes you actually need to watch. And and they were saying how, like, we don't really see that with Western shows, more more like, I guess, um, like anime, for example. Mm. We see a lot of that. And I started, and I was like, man, is there an abridged version of Big Bang Theory? <laughs> Please, do I have to sit through all of this? But And it goes to show. It anyway, was, I it, did it. It's it, ticked it, off TV time. It kind of, it was the sitcom equivalent of The Walking Dead. It was just on the right channel at the right yeah. time and it was making a lot of money because of that pop cultural nerdum who really let's be honest nerds were like the first people to really get into the binging culture so mm. i mean there were time slots on television where it'd be like big bang for three episodes tonight like we get yeah. three episodes in a row of big bang that's an hour yeah, and, and TV um, time. And the show premiered, I think, it 2007, 2008, around. But it's like that, that's kind of, that's the rise of the MCU right there. Yep. You got The Dark Knight, which got people like me to actually like Batman. <laughs> which, yeah. which is weird that I didn't pride. I just had a weird dislike of Batman until The Dark Knight. It was like that era of like the late 40s nerdum culture really started to blossom. So it kind of came out at the right time. Yeah, right. timed it well. 100%. And, um, anyway, and the only reason it ended is because. Um, Jim Parsons didn't renew his contract. He was like, "I'm done," and thank God, because if not, I would have been. I would have still been watching it today, Zeke, season thirteen yeah. and onward. He realised that the millions upon millions of dollars he had was uh, enough. Was enough. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Now, the other thing I saw this week, I alluded to you earlier, Zeke. Um, this is going to be an interesting one to talk about because you, I think you sent me a, um. Like a not a TikTok or an Instagram a reel, a reel a Instagram reel. Look at me go. That's it, Granddad. I know it's a reel. I know I'm, I'm gonna try and Where's de-age myself soon. I know. Oh, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, it means charisma. <laughs> oh, okay. You have plenty of riz. Jeff. We have riz together. Yeah, we do have riz. I like that. <laughs> and I'm gonna make sure I keep saying riz and and not starting with a J instead. Um, the film I watched in this past week is called The Creator. <laughs> that's so it's the Gareth Edwards film. And um, I mean, the thing you sent me, the reel, was to do with the fact that it was shot in the Sony FX3. Yes. So extremely affordable camera. A less camera. than 4000 US dollar camera. There you go. And um, That you can buy. Ah, da, 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 da. You can go to JV and buy it right now. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's... um. I'll talk a little bit about the actual film itself first. I think, first off, this film is sort of the epitome of so many things that we've been talking about a lot on the show. I mean, we, we compare something like Indiana Jones and The Flash and these, like, $300 million films to $100 million films like Barbie and Oppenheimer, and look how much better those films do because they've run by actual auteurs. And, you know, it's not junk that people think we want to... It's like, oh, the, oh you know, the, people want to see this in The Flash. They want to see Nicolas Cage and do this cameo and this Batman and this and mm. Michael Keaton's back and blah, 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 blah. It's like, they, they're all the things that they think people want and so they, they mass-produce this thing yeah. that is pretending to be artistry. And then you bring actual artists in to do something like, oh, Barbie's not the film people thought it was going to be. It's actually wildly different. And Oppenheimer... It, I mean, you could have guessed what Oppenheimer is, but I would never in a million years guess that it made $900 million at the box office because people are mm. starved for, for that. Now, this takes it to the next level in the sense that the creator is a film that is very, very visual effects heavy. You know, futuristic heavy sci-fi themes and visuals and it must have at least two or three thousand vfx shots in there and it only cost eighty thousand uh, sorry eighty thousand yeah right eighty million dollars 
which is like three and a half times less than the most recent Indiana Jones, and mm. it looks about three and a half times better than Indiana Jones. So I appreciate the low budget aspect of it, that this essentially trying to prove a point we can make a film that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Yeah, I mean, it's the District 9, Neil Blomkamp, yeah. you know, coming in being like, I'm going to make this film that has visual effects interacting with people and it's 30 million. Yeah, and District 9 is a fantastic film. It is. Now, I wouldn't say The Creator is a fantastic film. <laughs> this is where I think the line between, you know, the innovation behind it, the idea behind it, and the, the moderate budget, quote-unquote, and the way they went about making it in, in, in a very indie-like way, and we can talk about that in a minute, uh, meets the story. And mm. I thought the story was very generic, very bare-bones, bland characters I didn't care about, very predictable plot as I was saying earlier, like, I don't usually do this, but I'll see them be like, oh, this character's going to be this, oh, this character is alive, oh, this is going to be this uh, character, and this is the arc they're going to go on, and this is what's going to happen in the end. Well, and, and to be honest, let's be real, the only reason you're you're doing that is because you're not engaged with the product. You're, exactly. not, you're not getting yeah. immersed in the product, and that's not your fault, because if the product's not engaging... Well, it's, just, it's just the script. It's just, it was very generic, yeah. and I've seen arguments on both sides of, well, is this actually generic or is it just like visually reminiscent of other sci-fi films like, you know, Blade Runner, for example. And I think there's an element of that. I think the film looks absolutely visually stunning. It's very pretty to look at and I'm incredibly impressed by what they did. And 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 it's exactly as I predicted. I did some research and it turns out one of the things is that they didn't give the VFX artists anything to do until they had picture lock. And it, it's like that literally saves them hundreds of millions of dollars by just let's make sure the edit is finished first then give the vfx artists a footage that was mostly shot in camera already that's directed by a guy who has tons and tons of background in vfx artistry mm. so he knows what he's doing and only give him basically give him what you know is going to be done and this even extends to the animation world with the new Spider-Verse film where they were swapping shots out and completely starting shots from scratch right up until the week it was meant to come out. Yeah. And of course that raises the cost because there's there's indecisiveness. So when you get a director and a DOP and a, and a producing team behind a film like this that are just decisive mm. and know, okay, this is the final edit. We promise. This is the final. It's not going to get cut from the film and we're not going to ask you to change it last minute. You bring the cost way, way down, and the visual effect result is is stunning. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning to look so at. So it's it's kind of funny because it's such a visually, um, there's so many visual effects, but the procedure they've gone is quite minimalist. Yes, it's almost going the opposite way. It's like assuming there isn't a lot of them, but because there's a lot of them, but they've got the picture lock, they're able to be more efficient than if they only had half of those shots, but were fucking around with them. Exactly, and like, I mean, I I've seen this akin to. You know, people don't understand why VFX is bad. It's like, okay, well, imagine you're hired to paint a house and you have, like, seven rooms you've got to paint. And you, you're like, all right, well, this is how much it's going to cost. This is how much time it's going to take me. And you're painting. You get the first room done. You get the second room done. You're making sure the colors are right. You're making sure people are happy with it. And then you get to the sixth room and they turn around and say, oh, we're not happy. We want a different color. You have to start from scratch. But we're not paying you anymore to start from scratch. And you also have to still do it within the time allotment I've given you. So what happens? The work becomes shoddier because the person has less time to do it. It's it's just so obvious why films like The Flash look absolutely horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> and films like this don't because they just, they prepared and they didn't blindside their artist. 
It's as simple as that. But even just the research where the the reason they shot in a very affordable camera is because they wanted to use the money they would save from renting bigger cameras to travel the world. So instead of shooting in like the volume, which is great as the volume is, it kind of, when you're watching a Star Wars show, it becomes very quickly evident, like the look of it. It's like, yeah. oh, it's just a big empty space that these characters now in they're shooting on actual locations which giving it it's giving it much more dimension but it means a lot of the locations they're all it's real we're shooting in a real location you don't need cg artists to do entire environments for entire shots so like you said it's it's almost more is less or less is more yeah in, in this weird yeah so it's a well planned film with a very average plot that's precisely it it's a shame the story wasn't better, that I was not more engaged. And, like, there, there were just these things as well that happened throughout the story. Like I said, it's a very generic uh, protagonist. You know, the dead wife trope just repeated over and over again. So I've kind of seen this before. They do the same two-time needle drop for Claire de Lune. It's like, oh, wow. It's like every sad son movie sci-fi I've ever seen that uses the same piece of music. Mm. Like, it's just that, oh, my God, like... Even the, the whole thing, because it's all based around this futuristic war between humans and AI, which you would think is appropriate timing for a film like this to come out, it's weirdly pro-AI in the sense that it's like basically showing AI robots as like the marginalized society in this. Kind of like District 9, where it's, oh, we're meant to feel sorry for the aliens. For the bronze. For the bronze. <laughs> for the bronze man. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's like, it's fine. It's allowed to have sort of that, in- oh, oh, okay, it's weirdly pro-AI. But it doesn't have anything further to say about it, yeah. about AI's place in the world. It feels like a severely underexplored theme for something that's quite essential to the story. But anyway, I just found a lot of it very generic and like it's very, very pretty to look at. So I hate to, to poo-poo it in that sense. But yeah. And it does, a, like I said, it does a lot of things that I've been asking of big Hollywood films to do is go on location more. Be smarter about the equipment and, and crew that you hire. Mm. Give VFX artists a fighting chance to make good work. But uh, I just wish the story was a little better. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, I only caught one other thing this week. Mm. Um, I did manage to catch the second season of Heels, which Heels. I talked about this very long time ago, maybe a year ago. I might not have even brought it up on the... I think I did bring it up. Um, basically, it's a... Uh, based on Stan, so it's a Stan original, but it's yep. technically a Stars original. Um, and it centres around star Stephen Amell and, and Alexander Ludwig, who's uh, mm. one of the guys from Vikings. Stephen Amell, obviously, was uh, Green Arrow in the TV oh, show Arrow. Okay. Um, and basically centres around a small Georgian... Uh, wrestling promotion um, okay. that have been inherited. Uh, they've inherited from their dad who has just killed himself. Um, and look, you know, it's like an adult sort of show. It's got like, you know, it's an MA rating and all that. And it had a very good, decent pilot season. I was happy to know after I finished the first season, oh, it was renewed for season two. Yep. Season two's finale just aired last week. Um, and I went through and watched all eight episodes of that. Uh, it was good. It was definitely an improvement, a step in the right direction. It's, wide open for a season three Hmm. it's kind of it's good it's got that good balance of sort of adult humor at times probably a few too many curse words for my liking but Uh, okay sometimes can be a bit uh, crass for no real reason 
Um, is, this, it, is it just representing the community, Zeke? Yeah. <laughs> the way they talk. There's some cool things. Like, they touch on themes very similar to what um, Aronofsky does in The Wrestler. The sort mm. of... The, the impact it has on your body. The, the sort of chasing for this dream and the, the, the power of the spotlight. And there's a lot of elements there that I really like, obviously, as a big fan of wrestling and yeah. love seeing a wrestling drama really try and look at the the psyche, but also add that cinematic flair to it, which Aronofsky encapsulated really well in, in a pessimistic sense, sure, yeah. but um, absolutely it was there. So the show does a pretty good job of it. I was a little disheartened to see that Stars is dropping the show and they're now uh, looking for a season three showrunner. And um, that makes me worried. I always uh, don't like when a show goes up into the air, but they seem pretty confident they're going to get a season three. It would be a shame if that's the ending. Of the was show. it a cliffhanger in the season oh, two? Massive. <laughs> Huge. Um, Prepare for trouble. It was a good finale. It was a weird... Honestly, I would say the finale was good in aspects. There was something a character did that genuinely was confusing because it was introduced in the finale. Oh, I see. And planted and paid off in the finale to basically spawn season three. And I'm not sure I'm I'm happy with that in terms of writing. It feels a bit like... Last minute. We need, to, we need something to hook us for a third season. I always thought Bojack was really good at... If you look at the last episode of each season, the way they plant the seeds for the following season, I always thought it was extremely clever. Yeah. The way they did it. But, yeah. Shows at their peak, like, interlink seasons so well. Like, yeah. I, I think How I Met Your Mother had some really good linking seasons where it was, like, so clear, like, there needed to be another season. But obviously, towards the back end, it gets a little harder and harder to, to link them. Um, Community season two and season three are like perfectly linked. Yeah. Even season one, two, and three, they're like perfectly linked. And then it gets disjointed when Harmon gets kicked off the show. And right. That's a whole thing I didn't even realize. You know, oh, you haven't watched anything else this week. No, Have no, you? that that's all um, the I've whole seen this week. Justin Roiland stuff and Dan Harmon with. I didn't realize Rick and Morty, like the act, like oh yeah, no, the, it's a new show. it's a new voice actor now doing Rick and Morty. Sounds exactly the same. It sounds pretty good. I think the Morty's really good. I think the Rick, there's a little bit of that raspy, like the, the alcoholic throat sort of thing that's a little missing from the trailer. Because I was very curious. But it's it's very bang it's, on. Like, that, that's the route they're taking, is they're going to try and emulate it as much as possible, which, fair enough. Yeah. For anyone I, who didn't know the news, I suppose, is going to jump into the new season. Yeah, well, it's obviously Dan Harmon, who's creative community but as co-creator of rick and morty is still on the show and show running yeah. but justin Roiland, the the guy he said a lot of really bad things about it too and well i think i think he was fired because of the domestic abuse allegations and what's interesting is i'm pretty sure those charges were dropped since then yeah. so it is a, it's very similar to the jonathan majors marvel thing where do they just wait it out to see if the charges are dropped or their false allegations or what before they fire this person? It's very interesting. I mean, okay. hey, I'm all about the chaotic. As long as it's not a show I care about, I love the chaotic recasting. And oh, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm loving the fact that Loki season two got a lukewarm reception. I'm like, yep. Let's oh, just I forgot keep, that did come out. Last let's week, just yeah. keep pushing that MCU further into the ground so it stays <laughs> there. Thank you. Now I'm seeing there's an Iron Man, there's a Iron Man daughter show that's coming out. Oh yeah, with with 
Robert Danny Jr. being a hologram, basically. Nice. And I'm just like, just keep pushing it further in. Let's keep getting more She-Hulks in there just to make sure nothing You're comes You're going to watch the Marvels later this year, Zeke? You're excited? Yeah. I'm surprised I managed to do the Star Wars film, the Star Wars stuff last week. Oh, I was yeah, like, fair enough. I'm surprised I <laughs> did that, to be honest. And I genuinely think I've, I'm calling it now. They're retconning it. They're going to retcon it. They're going to get rid of 789. Mm. It's going to happen. Oh, well. Well, I'm not do watching you have any it. career updates before we move into the final installment in our Lord of the Rings? Um, I guess not. Not really. I've scheduled a VFX appointment later this week. Spicy. I'm going to have a VFX artist join the team and uh, see what they can do for for the film. Excellent. But, uh, maybe we'll talk more about that next week. Who Very knows? exciting. Well, it's time for us to move into... The film of the week, it's the final instalment in our Lord of the Rings trilogy extravaganza. Jake, <laughs> what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. The eye of the enemy is moving. The end has come. Every day, Frodo moves closer to Mordor. How do we know Frodo is alive? What does your heart tell you? Come, Master! Come to Smeagol! This is your test. Every path you have trod through wilderness, through war, has led to this road. Never let Aragorn come to the throne of Gondor. It is time. Give him the sword of the king. Become who you were born to be. The precious baby eyes. He means to murder us! I'm not sending him away. Come to me. The board is set. The pieces are moving. We come to it at last. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of man fails. When we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. Whatever happens, stay with me. This day, we fight! All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. We shall see the Shire again. You gave away your life's grace. I cannot protect you anymore. We cannot achieve victory through strength of arms. Not for ourselves. But we can give Frodo a chance. Aragorn is revealed as the heir to ancient kings 
as he, Gandalf, and the other members of the Broken Fellowship struggle to save Gondor from Sauron's forces. Meanwhile, Frodo and Sam take the ring closer to the heart of Mordor, the Dark Lord's realm. I just got an email from Red Rooster. It said, exciting news and important changes about their crunchy fried chicken. You know, I still haven't eaten fast food, like the bad, bad fast food all year. I want to specify Oh, well done. So no Domino's, no KFC, Red Rooster, chicken treat. No, you know what? I'll tell you what. New Year's resolutions, they're overrated. Because I made that my New Year's resolution, got about four weeks in, should have done what everyone does with New Year's resolutions, break it, break it. (laughs) And then I got to about four months. I went, oh, I get to four months, see how I go. Get to half a year. I'm now 10, 10 and a bit months in. I'm miserable. All I want is KFC. All oh, I want. I, and January 1st, you can get KFC yeah, I'll be in, at midnight. I'll be in like Belgium. I don't know if they'll have... Uh, Maccas? <laughs> no, nah, I want the first one to be KFC. I want, yeah, fair I want, enough. That's, and it's probably going to make me sick, to be honest. It's been so long. Uh, I'd make you sick even if you had it every day. Your that's body true. would never get used true. to that. I'm glad Nando's is still kind of healthy for you, so it's like... It's roast chicken. It's not fried chicken. Yeah. That's, that's something. I could... There's something about the Nando's. I can mentally be like, that's fine. Right. There's a, there's a slight difference. Yeah. And you get the experience at Nando's. You just remind me, I've got some Nando's in the fridge. Oh, Leftover Nando's. Oh, don't, don't be selling me that. I'm yeah. very excited. But uh, the King of Gondor, Zeke. <laughs> the return of the king. <laughs> well, we might have had a roast chicken. <laughs> We're just having second breakfast, Zeke. Uh, roast chicken? When would we have a roast chicken, Sam? I can't see its breads. <laughs> I, okay. Return of the King. Hmm, right. that's going to be interesting. So this is the film that I've always thought has some really epic moments, but out yes. of the three is my least favourite. It's funny because up until yesterday, I'd probably tell you The Two Towers was my least favourite. And now I'm wondering, is this my least favourite? They're all fantastic yeah, films. Yeah, This is like... Let's get that out of the way here. Yeah. We're talking four-star plus, at least. Yeah. Um, but the extended edition of this, at four hours and one minute, if you're not like a huge gobble-up-every-piece-of-information fan of Lord of the Rings, it you're asking a lot at four hours of your audience. Yeah, but... Let's be real. If you're watching the extended cuts sure. of you the forced third me to film, <laughs> yes, I did. You made me. <laughs> then you are wanting to gobble up every piece. And yes, and to be honest, enough. in this film in particular, a lot of the extended cut stuff is either battle sequence stuff, mostly yes. battle sequence stuff. Um, there's a lot on on Gothmog in particular, the orc okay. general. In the sort of Gondor siege, the one who looks a bit like, yeah, yeah, chicken as a chicken wing arm. <laughs> um, that's a lot of his stuff. There's a bit of Witch sure. King stuff yep. that's really important. And the the one I noticed straight away because when I first watched Return of the King theatrical version a few years back, I was like, "What happened to Saruman?" He's not. And and well, I was like, "Oh, huge." I genuinely I, in this week's edition of how could they have cut that? <laughs> yeah, how do you cut the villain of your second film? The second like, villain of the trilogy, really? Yeah, if you don't count the eye as a villain, 
and and genuinely, random non-realistic. For two out of three of your storylines in Two Towers, Saruman is the main villain of Two Pretty Towers. Pretty much, he's like the personified villain that speaks on behalf of yeah. villainy, who orchestrates the armies. And- like you said, I mean, in Fellowship, he's the one who has... he His troops are the one that yeah. go after the Fellowship. Yeah. Like like you said, he is the, the voice. He's the mouth of Sauron until he, you and meet the mouth of Sauron. And he's killed off screen in the original. I straight up didn't even know what happened to him. Yeah. I he, guess the crystal bowl? Wait, wait. So, how does that work in the theatrical version? How do so they get the crystal bowl? I can, I can help with this. Yeah, because... So, basically, what's implied is so this is quite interesting so christopher lee does talk about this in the i understand uh, he was really pissed he was pissed about getting cut from this yeah and he actually and he was very uh christopher lee about it like he wasn't like angry or anything but he just articulated he's like it's like you've just spent this whole time building up this villain yeah and you're gonna keep some of these big battle sequences in there which, to be honest, or even the it, stuff... there's a lot of fighting in this film. There's where a you're lot sort of like battles. You don't really need that whole scene, that engagement. It's like less than it's like six or seven minutes. It's yeah. not. I was shocked at how soon it came at the start of the film because I'd seen the behind the scenes of him getting stabbed and talking about, you know, being asked to kind of give this big, you know, exacerbated gasp. And him talking from experience of, no, when you're stabbed, you lose your breath. Like, that's a great little thing that I've seen online multiple times. I was like, I guess he gets stabbed, but it's not even... No, he gets impaled, yeah, but it's it's the whole thing. Um, So the thing with the Palantir, (laughs) so in the theatrical cut, the Palantir, so that Pippin uh, recovers and and sort of leads them on their, their quest for the third film, that's already just in the water. It's implied that. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's implied that. Do you see the tower, like a tower fall apart, and that's, or you don't? It's just in no. Order. It's just in, implied okay. that. I assume because obviously, if you look at the uh, the extended cut sequencing, he falls, he gets impaled on the spike, the sp- uh, on this like wheel, on this yeah. rotary wheel, and the rotary wheel, this water wheel, that's spiked, uh, rotates, and that's what leads to the Palantir falling out of his gown mm. or his, his cloak. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's just implied that the flood, it that it got lost it, in the previous film. Yeah, like the flood, the flood happened, and and Saruman's just basically locked away in the town. Because that's the thing, if you watch the theatrical cut, it yeah. basically implies Saruman's actually alive and just locked in the tower, and he's just he's just well dumb. that yeah. When I watched it in twenty twenty, I was like, I don't know what happens to this character. Straight up, just didn't, like I, I eventually figured out he must have died, but as a kid in a theater in, at the end of two thousand three, would you have that context? You probably wouldn't. Yeah, it's the most baffling cut of this film. It it genuinely, completely changes the dimension of the film. Well, the thing I found really interesting about the pacing, and and this probably explains the question I'm about to ask you, is that emotionally the majority of the hero characters in this film at the start of the film because of Saruman's death they're kind of in this state of celebration where they're all sort of drinking and cheering afterwards and um, Gimli and Legolas sort of have a drinking match which is quite fun 
but it's like it, it kind of almost establishes okay well this group of characters they're in a fresh state of mind like they're you know they're happy they're victorious and yeah. then of course you know pippin's going to unveil the next part of their journey in a moment and and there's still concerns about what's going on with frodo but they're generally for the most part celebratory yeah they're so having having a moment of reprieve exactly which is a nice place to set them at the start of the third film before their final the final leg of their journey but my question is from a producer standpoint you're sir peter jackson and you've got this big momentous story you've shot pretty much all of it already and you've got to decide when does the second film end and the third film start and you realize oh well the theatrical cuts for the second and third film were about three hours on the dot hmm. and then the last ones were three hours 20 whatever it is would it not make more sense to have saruman's death at the end of the two towers and yeah. that's I, I actually think that would work really well yeah, I mean, the argument is... I mean, you could absolutely put it there. They go into the woods. Basically, you wouldn't put it at the end. You'd still probably have the last... It wouldn't oh, be like the last shot. Well, because they but... say, oh, the War of the Rings about to begin. That could still even be your last shot. They could... Well, we... The thing is, it's like they go and get Merry and Pippin. I guess they want them to be separate and then quickly convene at the start of the third film. It doesn't really matter. No. They're going to go to Isengard to get Merry and Pippin now. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Like, you, like you, you said, it's a very short part. It's a short amount of film used to, yeah. to show... And then, death. honestly, you would cut back to Frodo and Sam and you'd finish the film with Frodo and Sam yeah. rather than... with, like, Gollum's sort of... Yeah. His plan, so to speak. Yeah, and you just cut it out to a wide they keep moving i think that that's but i'm I, even just from a producer's standpoint you're like okay well we've got the second film and the third film the third film is 20 minutes longer so we're already kind of struggling for time and this is a fairly important plot point you would establish is his death which could still work in the second to last film mm. i don't know it just makes a lot of sense to me of okay we'll just make the second film five minutes longer to be honest you just and then Anyway, yeah, I would just cut stuff from the, yeah, that that real fat in the middle there, like when you've yeah. got the, the the wars and the battles and and um, I think it's it's tricky because it's almost like I would also cut if I was to be dead serious. What yeah. fixes it? Replaces six minutes for six minutes. Is Faramir going out on that suicide charge? It's yeah, it, and what's interesting about that is it sort of felt a little janky because he goes in the suicide charge and then we, we miss the battle. Yeah. And we just kind of see, he comes back super injured. And the reality dead. is it's implied it's suicide. Really? We don't right. need to see it. Suicide. We've seen, they've been overpowered in the first act at Osgiliath by mm. this force that is, they've been rescued by Gandalf on the way back. They're in dire straits at Gondor. That suicide charge while Pippin singing, while a beat and a moment in the film. Yeah. He's kind of pointless. It's a great... I love the way it's edited. It's one of the few examples in the wider trilogies editing where they are able to sort of intercut multiple sections. And you're right, it's joined by, by his music or his singing, which is beautiful. It's a great moment, but is it as important as the death of Saruman? No, because the reality is that Den- Denethor's grief has already been well te- telegraphed mm. through Boromir and... And his resentment for Faramir is very clear to the point where Faramir's last interaction is, do you just want me to go basically yeah. suicide charge? So 
him coming back, you can cut straight back to the gates opening and him being pierced with arrows. And we know mm. what happened. Yeah. We know what they were running towards. And then in when they're lobbing all the heads over. So to me, that's a five minute sequence that doesn't really, if you need to find five minutes. Yeah, exactly. If you gi- need it, I gift there. you that five minutes and you can take out probably a couple of lines here and there and, and you'd still have the same. You would find pieces to cut. Absolutely. You would. So, it, yeah, that that was mind-blowing to me. I'm glad we mentioned that. Before we get any further, let's take one step back. Yes. I love, I love the opening to this film with Smeagol's yeah. backstory. It is phenomenal. It, uh, that's it. And that's a, that's a good sequence, isn't it? That transformation, mm. having the... The use of the prosthetics as, as yeah, as, oh, the shot when his eyes go from prosthetic to CG, like I I rewatched that shot over and over again. That is like flawless transition right there. It's very good. But just like the choice to, I don't know if that's how like in the 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 books, for example, if the third book or third volume opens with Schmeagel's backstory, I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't tell you but Whatever. it just it even the first time i watched it, i was like oh this is so great like we're going back and we technically saw glimpses of it in the fellowships prologue but it's great to go back and see andy circus do a proper scene to see immediately how he's taken over by the power of the ring yeah. and even just like the visual comparison like we see it across the whole trilogy you go from the shire to mount doom like that is a you know that is an a to z journey in terms of the color mm-hmm. of the scenery and we go from luscious, beautiful green to just like molten lava environments, and and the opening to this film is a microcosm of that with Schmeagol turning into Gollum again, luscious green, beautiful pond environment yeah. to him in the cave, transforming into this this disgusting figure. Yeah, it's just so well done. It's very well done, and it, it, like you said, it allows having that moment where we get to see Andy Serkis as a as a as a person actor, yeah. which is really important because. We were talking about how hard-working and, and really just awe-inspiring that performance is from a, mm. just a commitment to the part. Um, and for it to almost be sort of, um, by the general audience, almost taken for granted in terms of his performance of it all. Obviously, it's a, it's a warning sign too. I mean, we're watching this, this story unfold, but we see how quick it is to corrupt Smeagol and, mm. and we're seeing Frodo get worse and worse. The la- the la- one of the last interactions we saw, uh, stories we saw between Sam and Frodo, Frodo had pulled a sword on him. Yeah. So we're at this point where we have this real worry. It's also that cautionary tale of really the power and clout of the ring. And yep. obviously you add someone who's also trying to drive a wedge between these two people yep. artificially, the stakes are immediately set. And it's mm. it gets gloomy very quickly, and really gets us back into that feeling, like you said, of there have been some successes that we've had with other characters, but these guys, it's just getting worse for them by the day. Yeah, their relationship is is essentially about to snap, and there is that scene where it it does snap. Where you know, there's the the oh, he took the bread, he's got breadcrumbs on him, Gollum being a a little shit. <laughs> Genuinely. Um, look, I, I sit there and I'm always like, how, like, he's the one who's been rationing it. Like, he's the one been rationing it. Why would he eat the bread? But then at the same time, it's like Frodo's obviously not strong of mind at that point. And, no, and, well, there's the, there's the corruption, but then it goes back to as devoted as Sam is in that moment. Like, we we love Sam. Yeah. He's, he's the truest friend you could possibly yeah. have. But 
I also, the films have done such an exceptional job to this point of showing, despite, you know, Schmeagol or Gollum sort of crazed personality and his horrid appearance and everything, there is that thing that ties them together because they both were the ring bearers. Bearers, yep. And they both, they both have this sort of tie to each other that, I mean, and this is represented in the fact that Sir Peter Jackson gave, um, gave Elijah Wood and Andy Serkis each their own ring when the film wrapped. Yeah. And it's like, they both have like a sense of ownership of this ring. So the, the film, I feel like all of them until this point have done such a great job at showing their like kinetic relationship. Yeah. And, a- and it goes back to the Bilbo speech or, or Gandalf speech about Bilbo of sparing him. And there was a purpose and a reason that he spared him. So I, there's all of these things going on in Frodo's mind to, to protect Schmeagol. Mm. So I and get, I get that rift completely. Absolutely. And, and, and it also comes back to the fact that there's this inevitability of corruption that the ring's mm. going to have, that they will try and take it at some point. And it comes back to the fact that, and we do actually see the weight the ring has for a brief moment on Sam way later in the film. But yeah. obviously, like you said, the, the real moment where this, this relationship severs, um, and probably never fully recovers ever again, I think. Like, there, there's mm, definitely a okay. sense of duty and purpose in what Sam does in the second half of the film, and there is still a love there. But obviously their relationship is much like their journey to Mount Doom is, is forever changed and, and kind mm. of lost, really. That <laughs> innocent friendship they had all of, like... 13 months ago, which is yeah. something that I don't want to jump too far forward, but sure, I genuinely do I, don't yeah. know how all of this happens in 13 months. When they say 13 <laughs> months of the day, I this is the first time I heard it and like it registered. I'm like, that's a year and a like month. Like everything happened in a year and a month. Like that's what a year. I, yeah, I know. That's crazy. I, that makes sense to me. It kind of makes sense. Cause it really Cause is. We are, the, these stories, they do feel like they're being told in real time. Like, even the, the gaps mm. between the three films don't feel very big. In fact, it might just be a matter of minutes. I guess when you think of something like Game of Thrones, where it was, like, over sure. eight or nine years, technically, or yeah. whatever, and it the time frame kind of, you feel it a little bit, so all these big events feel like they're, they're peppered. I guess um, if we were to compare it to us, it's like taking a, a, a walking to the other side of Australia. Yeah. And that, that could conceivably take 13 months. Oh, but yeah. then coming back, I guess you got to come back as well. I guess every now and then you can hitchhike. Or the the, the I wonder new, if you could do it. You'll have an eagle. How long it would take you to walk from one end of to Perth to Melbourne? I'm going to search it up on or Perth to Sydney. Google Maps actually. Um, let's find out. But yeah, like I get what you're saying. Um, to be honest, it's just kind of crazy to think about, really, um, that all of those events occur over that time. But I, I think. The moment that occurs on the on the stairwell, which is relatively early on, I think mm. it's it's definitely I would say at the end of the first act is when sure. Sam and it almost like the because it's not really the low point. That's just almost the call to action for the film is mm. is they get separated. He gets told to go home. Yeah, and well, the the low point would probably be when Frodo's injured. Yeah, or stunned from the spider. Yeah, or even just when he's in the in Shelob's lair and he's right. like actually can see or just after he's survived Shelob's lair and been attacked by Gollum and it's like I feel like 
he's like, oh, Sam, mommy, Sam. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry, Sam. Yes. I will say, apparently, to walk from here to Sydney only takes about 34 days. Yeah, so you, like you count time to I, sleep and, and that could... And then to walk back. I mean, that make, that tracks. 34 days, that's a month of continuous walking. I reckon... I reckon so two and a half in, months of actual walking. Yeah. Several months of resting and sleeping. And, yeah, I'd say it'd take you about six months. Yeah. I reckon, realistically. That'd be cool to do if you could, like, actually do it safely, wouldn't it? Mm. It would be very dangerous, I imagine. I struggle to leave my room, so... <laughs> That's already a bit much for me. Um, <laughs> I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave the Shire, Zeke. That's fair. That is totally fair. But like you said, so you know that's sort of what's going on at that point, and and we've already talked about what the start of the sort of the rest of the Fellowship storyline is, which yeah, quickly quickly severs after Pippin is Pippin and goes and looks Can't at the, uh, the the palantir and basically well it's it's his own little moment of desire and obsession ob- obsession in, in the sense of like that's his like ring moment yes he gets the chance to to as an actor give that performance of what it looks like to be so desired by this object um but then to see how i mean it ultimately ends up being a good thing because it's knowledge yes the the, the next quest gets unlocked exactly the <laughs> <laughs> in the video game i reinstalled exactly. skyrim uh, oh the nice! Other day, I think I'm going to play. And not to get not to get tangential, sure. But I want but. to say one thing about the PS5 that I love. Okay. Um, I've got a PS4 version of Skyrim, but I could install the new PS5 version of Skyrim. Oh, for nice, free. nice. That's it was cool. Like, do you want to download this new version that's got like better graphics? I think they stuff? did. Yeah, I do actually remember that they they would they did the free upgrade. But I actually do remember them announcing that. Re-released it about eight times, and yeah, I might as well be free at this point. <laughs> I was sitting there, I was like, "That's awesome!" So now I've got a PS5 version, like, nice. ready to play. And hopefully, it runs extremely quickly. I'm like genuinely excited to play it. Nice. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm gonna never be seen again. <laughs> Skyrim just sucks your life. This will be the last episode of the show. Yeah, Zig's busy playing Skyrim. Tangent aside, but you're 100 percent right. <laughs> um, it basically unlocks the, the, the premonition, the Palantir has the the doomed view, which, to be honest, is probably what... It's not really mentioned, but it's implied Denethor, the steward of Gondor, mm. also has a Palantir. There's seven of them. Okay. And that's kind of why he's like, everything's doomed and everything sucks. It's like, he's already had that, like, that vision so he has and the, it sort of succumbed to the weight of his arm. It's too, like, we're too far gone. Yes. So that sort of adds a bit of context to sort of why... I mean, it's enough in the film that he's just grief-stricken by Boromir. Like, Well, that was a, that was a question I was going to ask you, especially the whole Faramir stage where he's obsessed with this idea that he's he's lost both his sons and, and he's about to burn him alive when he thinks he's actually cremating him. Is that just that, like, a father grieving? Or is there, like, a, a extra magic-induced sense of... I think what it's do a, you reckon? I think it's a father grieving, but it's also it's just this delirium and ego. Like mm. he and the whole idea of of not to get into the world of familiar side, like oh, well, you know. <laughs> um, but there's that idea that you know when people are, are grief stricken, like parents are grief stricken, and then they they act out on these inhumane acts. Yeah upon their kids who don't know better or in lesser states. Now, 
often that's with the case of younger children. Mm. That's really horrible and disgusting and terrible and wouldn't wish it on anyone. But obviously, in this case, it's a injury-prone, comatose, temporarily comatosed Faramir. Right. Who can't uh, say he's alive, basically. Yeah. And incapacitated. It, and I think, yeah, incapacitated is a great way to say. And that becomes very clear when, before he even lights the pyre, he pours oil on him and mm. Faramir moves and he chooses to. And we get that POV right. shot of Denethor looking down and he saw him move but chose to do nothing. Yeah. Well, uh, even the, the first instance where I think it's. Is it Pippin that yells or would, be, would it be Merry? No, it's, it's Pippin. It is Pippin who's yelling like he, you know, he's still alive, he's still alive. And. And we go back to his sort of POV where the, the audio's drained out and that he's yeah. so grief-stricken in this moment that he can't comprehend the senses around him. And, and like you said, it's it starts to become like a willful ignorance yeah. that his son may still be alive, in fact. It's, it's genuinely, for me, that that's him... There's nothing likable about Denethor as, as a character, to be sure. honest. I, I genuinely think that there's no feeling sorry for him that... Borom is dead, and that becomes equally more echoed if you've watched the Two Towers extended cut, because mm. you get to see that first interaction where, from the very get-go, there's nothing that he likes he's, about He's Faramir. far more into, yeah, Barrymore, the, exactly. Yeah, there's there's nothing like he ca- he doesn't care, and to the fact <laughs> that he's willing to send his son on this suicide charge for no reason, they'd never take the city back. There's no strategy in it. it genuinely yeah. sending his son to die, basically, so then he can kind of be made out like this grief-stricken father that can then take his own life. But the reality is he hasn't prepared for, for battle or war. Like, mm. the the defences aren't armed. And, and to be honest, he's just doing everything because he's got petty, petty agendas, mm. such as wanting to be seen as this at least this martyr at this point yep. who who dies in, in battle <laughs> in the battle of Minas Tirith where it's just not true and um or doesn't want Aragorn to take the throne. Yep. And by killing off his lineage at least his lineage didn't get uh overthrown by a king. Right. So there's there's several things going on, but like you said, I think a lot of it is psychological. He's and- just a piece of crap to be honest <laughs> he's just genuinely to put dis- it to put it plainly the highlight of the film is definitely when just Gandalf bops him on the nose <laughs> I love it is played sort of comedically isn't it it's a weird beat that's the other thing that's just a weird beat for me it's funny yeah but it's a weird comedic beat that there's like this just hell's armies at your door and he's like, flee, flee for your lives. And he just, <laughs> and just goes, pop. <laughs> but then it's it's almost like that's the juxtaposing, um, not even power dynamics, but just in terms of being a ruler and a king, yeah. is you have one character that's like, you know, run for your flee, flee. And then the other character in Gandalf, like, all right, okay, listen to me now. We're going to... We're gonna stand up for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna defend ourselves. So it's and I, I think that the whole film, I mean the whole trilogy, really, it starts in the two towers, but it also plays out in here this idea of hope and not losing hope. Yeah. And I mean that plays into the whole return of the sword. Yes. Which how much of that is extended? Is is all of that um, theatrical? Elrond comes to the camp and gives yes, him the sword. The course. whole forging it, I think, is extended. really. 
Oh, that's a shame. Um, like the actual like sending it and stuff. No, it just cut straight to Elrond being like, "Yep, I remade the sword. Be a be a king. Go get the army of the dead." There's so much more power to um to Arwen's like agency in that scene, and we you know in the two towers she's sort of convinced to run away, and again that's where that female hopes comes back, where she turns around, goes up to him, and basically demands he reforge the sword yeah. because she mm. sees visions of of Aragorn as an older man with a son. She can see that future. So she's going to fight for that future. Yeah. And because obviously they have this innate uh, family ability for foresight where they can potentially see the, the future. Right. Um, that's uh that's, um, and Elrond had already seen that, but, um, it was only one of many sort of visions. And the whole thing is that, I didn't quite understood and quite understand it, but I think I sort of do is that Sauron diverts some of his energy to basically um, and power to basically poison and like slowly kill Arwen, and mm, that's okay. a way of getting to Aragorn. Um, Interesting, because there is a certain point, obviously after Elrond gives the sword back, yeah, says Arwen's dying. Um, and basically, everything's kind of riding on this working because she'll die yep. if, if this stuff. And that kind of makes sense because he sort of just has that power and he's just all powerful. It's a weird sort of extra beat that doesn't really need to be in there. Like, she doesn't I guess need not. to die. Like, like, when you get to the final battle, they're at the gates that lead into, I guess, Mordor. Yeah. And you, you, you're in Mount Doom and you're following the ring. Like, with all of that sort of tension and noise, you don't really need... Oh, Arwen's dying as well, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> It's a bit of an un... It's just like it's a like, tiny little extra like, thing of almost, tension, yeah. yeah you're Ticking like, clock. But I guess then why wouldn't she be there fighting alongside them too? That's also a way of removing her from... Because Eowyn so. and Faramir are taken out of the equation in that final battle. Right. Because of everything that happens. But part of that can also just be like the patriarchal classic fantasy stuff that we see with... um, It's Pippin and... I always forget her name. Eowyn. Eowyn. Who kind of work together to as as two people who are sort of not ostracized, but sort of told that they can't enter the battlefield that it's too dangerous for them, but are both so determined to do so. I like that little relationship they develop. But Mulan, maybe, exactly, it's just Mulan <laughs> all over again. Mary Mushu. <laughs> yeah, I I also love. This is just like a little detail because I was thinking. When you get this far into this like fantasy trilogy, and you know, I don't know when I watch something like Harry Potter, I feel like that as well. Was I stopped paying attention to a lot of the filmic techniques going on, the way scenes edited or shot. I kind of just get caught up in the overarching story well, at hand. This film is very much a set piece film. I think mm. you know we were talking about sort of the driving. I think the driving story of Lord of the Rings is actually fully um, at this point has almost been completely told. Um, through I think the Sam monologue at the end of the second one really drives mm. home the point of the story, and and in the first film it's Frodo accepting that he has to undertake this task by himself. Yeah, this film is, as they say in the film, it's like all the pieces are in play. It's time to just the war beginning, and Sauron's making his first move. He's yep. summoning his army at Minas Morgul to go to to Minas Tirith and and just wreck shop and. Like you said, it, it allows you to just... It's sort of like those... Especially those last two Harry Potter films where it's mm. just like... Things have started. Things are in motion. You're just kind of seeing how everything lands now. Yeah. Sort of caught up in the 
know, the outcome of everything. We don't need to so talk to about Harry's childhood trauma for that 19th time. <laughs> He's going to go draw his wand. Well, the, the thing I specifically wanted to pay more attention to is those filmic codes. And, okay, well, how, what's Peter Jackson using with the camera to reinforce the story? And I think, like you said, as much as there's all this overwhelming narrative going on and we're sort of in the final push that so we're sort of consumed and swept by that, I love the fact that when... Um, they first arrive, Gandalf and Pippin, to Minas Tirith. The fact that there's so many of these swooping helicopter shots mm. while they're having this one-on-one, somewhat private conversation. There are guards around, but, I mean, when he tells Pippin, like, just don't say anything. <laughs> don't bring up this. Don't bring up that. It's like, these are conversations that are quite private one-on-one conversations, but they're being had with these gigantic swooping helicopter shots that are establishing the beauty of the location and and i guess that's also setting up the geography for the battle scenes later when you yeah. know those walls are all getting torn down but i just thought it was so interesting that peter jackson's still taking the time to be like, look at this giant magnificent world that we've created that so much of the love for these films is the fact that we're in this fantastical yeah, and a lot arena. of these sets are built to scale yes um in their segments with Minas Tirith, it was like they almost built like sort of every level in a, in in a, in a one thing, and then they move to the next set for the next level, and next set, yeah. the next level. And you look at the, some of the shots they had to do, and you're just blown away. Oh, it's just in- incredible! And like you said, they're working with miniatures, and then like mm. the the real stuff that the actors are working. Then you bring in other actors that are different scales, so they they can comp into each other, mm. and it's just the the level of scaling that has to be considered from every single shot is just phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's generally very impressive to see, and like you said, there, there's still a lot of filmic codes in there. Don't get me wrong; there's some really good sequences that help us create fear and suspense. I mean, the Shelob's lair sequence is is great mm. on in the Frodo Sam timeline as um, Gollum leads um, Frodo into the cave, and he's trying mm. to work his way out. And even the after he escapes the lair successfully. Um, I love the spiders the like of, lingering uh, above him. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, uh, and then obviously that leads into that really cool sort of Sam fight scene. We get that triumphant moment. Yeah, so, that is great because like it really does feel like the full circle moment for not just the hobbits but for Sam as well. That they are fighters, yeah. and that that they started in the Shire having never imagined being in a fight, a, a fight or flight life and death scenario like that and and sam's doing it for the love of frodo he's doing it solo baby <laughs> that's exactly he is it. no man he is a halfling oh exactly yeah i am no man as they was, kill the witch king i was about to say you know i tell you what I, that is not one of those like that's like feminist like cinema before like <laughs> it was cool <laughs> you get this big bad that no it's man the, can it's, kill. The, it's all the female superheroes in at the end of Endgame shot. Yeah. That's what that is. <laughs> um, no, it's a great moment because it really fulfills sort of Eowyn's sort of moment. Um, she gets that big triumphant moment where she saves, well, she saves Theoden, her uncle. Yes. Um, from a, a terrible death. He just hits a normal death instead <laughs> um but it is a really cool sequence even that sequence 
is great because of how like they use like those real high angles to make her look weak, and then the, mm. the Morning Star and seeing her like horrified face at the, this was not what she <laughs> not what she signed up for. No, no, certainly um, not. But all the men tried to mansplain it to her and warn her. War. Yeah. Make sure you want to go. What's Carl Urban that? Yes. That <laughs> she says that to her. Diabolical. <laughs> um, how do you feel about the uh, ghost army? Yeah, that was interesting. It reminded me of a lot of Simpsons jokes that must have been based around the ghost army. Um, so they don't, why don't they keep the, the ghost army? Well, wasn't the whole thing... My understanding is that when they sort of... They obviously helped Aragorn and, and the rest and they participate in the battle... And then he, he he says something about like relinquishing them. Yeah, so and they all the, sort their of... souls are bound to a Sildor's heir, basically. So right. Sildor had access to them, um, and, and Aragorn's sort of inherited it. So yeah, to basically. Speak. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the whole thing was he was supposed to release them and didn't Sildor, and Aragorn does it because yes, essentially they would still be bound to him if he went no, but they probably wouldn't help again. Yeah. Um, well, that that's just part of his, uh, you know, his leadership. Being <laughs> good guy, good guy, Still a good guy. He's a good Still guy. Still a dirty Aragorn. dog. Definitely let Aowen even... on. Don't don't, don't uh, come at me. A little otherwise. bit, maybe a little bit. Oh my god! <laughs> you can confirm it now, Jake. You see the scene with Theoden being like, "I'm happy for you." He's a good man. Yeah. <laughs> didn't even just dupe. Didn't even just dupe her. Dupe the uncle. Yeah, it's true. He's just so sexy that people just they want to believe Zeke. Mm. And then, he, and then after she's like injured, <laughs> and she's like getting, she, he's there with the water, like nursing her. Yeah, real romantic, like it's there, <laughs> it's there. Dirty dog Aragorn. Aragorn. Oh my goodness. Um, no, it, but it's a good fight. I mean, like the big things to kind of talk about in that sequence is the the massive scale of that Rohirrim charge, epic mm. speech, great music. Um, and the CGI of the uh, the Oliphants, the Mumakils. Yeah, I guess considering the yeah the time that this is, we're sort of talking the Attack of the Clones in terms of our comparisons. Yeah. The CGI monsters or characters. Yeah, it's good. But I will say the Dead Army reminded me a lot of the first Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a big inspiration. Oh, there you go. There was a, apparently, as they were doing it, they were in the very early stages of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Like scripting and pre-production. Oh well, no, they were already. At, I think they'd already shot it. Oh, okay. Um, the CGI was. They were. They said it was like a big part of it was sort of. They heard mm. about parts of the Caribbean was being made with these uh, dead, and they saw how they did it, and they were like worried that. Interesting. Okay. Um, would be the other way around. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but it goes to show you that maybe parts of the Caribbean was in the post-production realm for a long time because mm. they mentioned it on the uh, the DVD commentary. I remember that. Oh, interesting. Did you know where the Peter Jackson uh, cameo was in this film? Oh, um... So he's... I think I saw I saw a behind-the-scenes clip. I saw him dressed up. Yes. But I don't think I know So in the first one, he's be. the guy eating the carrot and brie. Okay. Um, and the second one, he throws a spear at Helm's Deep into an Urukai. He's got like a nice. chainmail on. Excellent. And in this one, he's one of the the pirates, the corsairs of. Oh. In fact, everyone on that ship in that scene where Legolas fires the warning shot yep. and then kills <laughs> the one he kills is That's Peter good. Jackson. 
Oh, um, that's cool. I like and that. everyone on that crew, they're all actual people from the Lord of the Rings, like, main crew. Oh, that's cool. So there's actually, like, crew members. 20 cameos on that ship. Nice. Um, they all whole... just die immediately. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's just... Oh, I got to be killed cut. in Lord of the Rings, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, it would be, because I, I don't remember the him getting, like, knocked over, and that's why he's, like, he got the shot. I remember seeing it, it was another Instagram reel or a YouTube reel or whatever that talks about Legolas never missing a shot, and it talks about how when he shoots through one of the dead, like, even though it's off screen, they're like, oh, but it actually hit another thing, so he still, he still never misses. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you're correct. <laughs> okay. Righto. And when it goes through him, it's still a hit. It's not like it's not like he missed nah. the bullseye. It's like, come on, guys. I have to say, the lighting of the beacons, probably the coolest mode of communication. It's really cool. <laughs> There's so many helicopter shots in Lord of the Rings. There are. My God, Might whoever well. their pilot, he must have made a killing. He's always he he must, having fun piloting. He must have. He must have made more money than the guy, the the pilot from Firefest. <laughs> 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 tried to set up actual systems for the festival. Oh lord! Now they they get they get good use. I mean, hey, if they did it now, they would just have drones. Would have saved a lot of money. Would it be as good though? Probably not. No, I don't. Think I mean, because like drone footage. I mean, we're so used to like commercial drone footage that's like so smooth and mm. calm and clear. And there is the fact that this is all helicopter footage. There's like. This extra, like, not shake or handheldness to it, but there, there is a more chaotic yeah, sense to it. It's not perfect. Yeah, so I, I almost like that more. more. It's kind of like the film versus digital argument, where there's, yeah. there's like a roughness to it that actually kind of makes more sense. Yeah, there are some films, even like films that come out nowadays, that some of the cameras look so crisp, but they also kind of make it look quite jelly sometimes. It almost looks mm. like jelly to me. Yeah. You know, like these like Netflix originals and these Apple originals. There's something nice about a little bit of grit and a little bit of a little bit of that noise. Yes, yeah, so they want it to be so clean. Yeah. The cleanest glass ever. What have you got anything else you'd like to add? Let's see. I w- so I wrote this well, uh, one note I will go on. Let's let's take it back to the Frodo Sam and Gollum journey. There was a line that Gollum, or I think Gollum says to Schmeagel in his like water reflection, which is a great little mm. continuation of the shot reverse shot yeah. in Two Towers. But he says, Patience, my love. He calls uh, Schmeagel my love. I thought that's such an interesting little detail. Yeah. But it could almost be like a pet. It's, well, it's an abusive relationship, yeah. I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an interesting nuance. I've never thought about it there. But yeah, yeah I had to rewind the thing. I said, wait a second. Did he say my love? And he says it multiple times. Yeah. He calls him my love. So I thought that was really interesting. But what I wanted to carry from there, I did write this in my notes, Zeke. And this is this kind of goes back to what I alluded to earlier, that the, the Return of the King might be my new least favorite. And that these are all great films. Mm-hmm. But I think, especially with the extended editions, it is the longest of the films, and it is the one that spends the most time on just, like, battle sequences, which are all fantastically done, but it doesn't move the plot at a brisk pace. Um, I mean, none of them do, but I feel like I was more engaged with the other two. I think for this one, the big one for me, and it happens across all the films, but especially in this one, I think Frodo and Sam's screen time 
it feels like they don't have a lot of screen time. I feel like they go like 30, 40 minute chunks in the edit where we don't well, go back to They're very close them. by the time, mm. even at the start of the film. It And there's not much left for them to do. They need to have the falling out and Frodo needs to get to She Loves Lair and then get captured. And um, pretty much after they get to is it Kirith Ungul, the mm. tower right. they're in, um, and Sam rescues Frodo, they don't have much left to do do yeah and um, i and i think i understand the limitation because there's the hot the the, the not the beast or yeah. well the fellowship side of the story let's call it i understand that that kind of has to they have to get past that battle and they've got to get to the point in the story where they realize they need to basically distract the eye of sauron and go to the gates like they need to get to that portion of the story before they can tell yeah. the latter half of frodo and sam's journey which i love all of that like them they're on their last bit of food. They finally accepted they might. This is not a return trip. They probably will die at the end of this journey. Uh, that they they're shedding each other of all like their the things they don't need anymore. Like, oh, I did up. like when they it's dressed great. up as orcs and they got inspected oh, yeah. and had to start a fight. <laughs> but you see, there's a lot of great stuff that sort of wedged in the last hour of the film. Yeah, but and I understand why because they needed the other side of the story to get to that yeah. point. We also got to remember. After Rohan kind of shows up at the... Or even just the build to the Battle of Gondor. Yeah. There's not much happening in terms of... Other than we're just building to that battle. And when that battle happens, it's like the biggest battle Middle-earth's ever seen, basically. Um, And we've got to remember in the previous film, we had three separate storylines that were very separate. They weren't... And that might have evened out the time a little bit more whereas we have five members of the fellowship in one place and then two of mm. the other and you can add i guess yeah smeagol Gollum. but he gets after frodo like throws him down the edge we don't see him until literally the the final ascent to mount doom yeah see uh, that doesn't bother me because at that point Gollum's like he's fully outed as working against frodo yeah so it makes sense to me like okay well final boss well, exactly, exactly. Bring him back right at the end because we we need him. Otherwise, the ring's not going to get thrown in the mountain um, or into the lava without him. But that makes perfect sense to me because at that point, like, there's not much more you can do with Gollum. The the whole like, is he going to betray them? Won't he? Will Frodo figure it out? All of that's gone. Like that's once the spider comes out. Yeah. yeah. So that that doesn't bother me at all. That huge chunk of time without Gollum. But I just think for me, and I said it three years ago when I first watched theatrical versions and I still feel this way now even though I paid way more attention to you know the Aragorn storylines and everything with Mer- Merry and Pippin which I mean they have more to do than, than Frodo and Sam for a lot of this film mm. to, until the end um, but I still felt like that was the journey I was most invested in was these two hobbits doing the impossible and like with this film it generally felt like the first three hours of the four hour cut very little happened with them. And, like, they have been very true to the source material. There's not much more they can do. And I appreciate that. But it was something. If I had to nitpick the franchise, if I had to poke at it, that's probably where I would do it. And I'm and I'm not... Please, God, don't hurt me when I say this. But a lot of these issues that I had here were the same issues I had with the Battle of the Five Armies, which is a much, 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 much worse film. Don't get me wrong. But... The Hobbit story being completely sidelined yeah. for just hours and hours of fight scenes. Same issue I had with that film. 
So fair. Just saying it. There just you gonna go. say that. Well, that's fair. How how do you feel like? Uh, <laughs> how do you think? Obviously, we have that massive climax scene, as you said. Yeah. You know, Gollum Smeagol are the reasons that technically the ring gets destroyed. Yeah, that's all utterly brilliant. In fact, I mean, that shot, the close-up of Frodo, he's holding up the ring. All he has to do is drop it. And just the look of it. I mean, Elijah Wood's eyes are just so mesmerizing already, but mm. the intensity in his face is you realize, like, he can't do it. The ring, he can't. The, 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 he's not going to make this choice willingly. It's brilliant. It's utterly brilliant. You're so fixated on that decision. Yeah. that he makes there and luckily you're right Gollum shows up get a real horror <laughs> moment gets his finger stumped yeah so. I, I like that there's like one final scar that yeah. he'll forever be with well while he's alive <laughs> but it's a, it's a really poetic moment beautiful music and we get that yep. sort of the the moment when everything's sort of wrapped up and the hobbits go home with their Vietnam-esque scars you know they're <laughs> they're not the same and obviously, you know, this is the time where we knew Gandalf was going to be leaving and all that stuff because his purpose has been served. Yes. And Bilbo's going to join him because Bilbo is now heavily aging quickly because he doesn't have the ring on him. Yeah. Um, and Frodo makes the decision to uh, go with them. There's a great scene when they're in the carriage together and Bilbo asks, like, what, what ever happened to that ring I gave you? And Frodo's like, oh, I lost it. And there's just a great exchange, and then and then he says like, "Oh, I wish I could have worn it one more time." And I'm surprised in that moment, Frodo doesn't say "Me too." I was really, really expecting that. Well, I th- I think in anything, it comes back to the fact that Frodo knows he's about to leave, and that's the reality. True. Maybe I think there's a genuine, although he succumbed to the ring's powers. Mm. I think that there is a part of him that, you know, and he even says it's like you can just, you never can go back. And he lost the most out of all of this. And, you know, at the end, he does get a very uh, pious ending that only him and Bo- Bilbo of their kind is able to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's. I think in that moment, there's almost a moment where, like, was that all worth it? Is what. He's going to have this divine um, completion to his life and fulfillment, sure, but he quite liked his life, and it's that sort of scar of what happened to him because of that ring. Mm. It is bittersweet because you're right. There's that Vietnam ex-soldier type thing that they all share. I don't want to spoil my highlight scene, but there's a great moment where the four of them just kind of have that that look to each other. Mm. But... I think it's bittersweet because number one, you got the sadness of he feels like he can't live the life he once did, and so he might he might as well go. Yeah. But then it also goes back to what we talked about in Fellowship of the Rings with this idea of like knowledge being passed down and archiving these mm-hmm. events and the fact that him and Bilbo wrote this book together, essentially. Yeah. And then he gives the book over to Sam to essentially finish it. Yes. You know, fill in that last page, so to speak. So I, I think that's where, like, the bittersweetness comes from, is, like, his legacy will, you know, maintain and live on. And that's something that him and Sam joke about in Two Towers of, you know, the the story the the stories of Frodo and his friend Samwise. It does make you very sad, though. It does, but it, I, I think it kind of fits in perfectly with the, the themes of the film. And they're not even the obvious themes of like good versus evil and hope and wartime and all it's the more subtle themes about 
about legends and and knowledge and being passed down and yeah. and making sure people don't absolutely that this is all retained and I I think it perfectly ticks off that little checkbox at the end. Um, I you know what's funny? I get the joke people make about there being like seven different endings to this film. There are really only like two. Yeah, there's the Aragorn ending. There's the Aragorn ending. He accepts his crown. He reunites with Arwen. Them waking up, like, and everything's happy and dandy. That's that's not, not an ending. That's that's a payoff to the fact that they were on a molten. Uh, that they all survived and yeah. like, oh my god, we yeah we're here now, we're together again, and like and there were so many payoffs because yeah, it's like we haven't seen Aragorn and Arwen together since the first film. Frodo thought Gandalf was dead until that point, yeah. and I forgot that. And as soon as they start laughing, he's like Gandalf. I'm like, oh my god, he thought he was dead for like, ne- I guess nearly 13 months. Yeah, the majority of that trip. So there are a lot of great little reunions there, unless you're the Wizard of Oz, in which case you do end at the scene where they're all in bed together. But yeah. <laughs> but that's not an ending, right? It's the Aragorn ending. That serves the title, the Return of the King. That's the final footprint on that title. But then the rest of it is is what happens to the Hobbits, and yeah. Gandalf's ending, and the Elves is end. They're all sort of tied to that same ending. That's what happens to the Hobbits. So I disagree with the theory that there's like seven endings. No, there's two. There's two. Yeah, and they're long, but it's Aragorn and then the Hobbits. It's all needed though. Yeah. I think it's all there. I think. I mean, you prob. I mean, at best, do you do you need the Aragorn coronation scene? I guess it maybe doesn't need to play out as long as it does. The bowing to no one, you don't really. Need oh, it. but that's so good though. It's powerful. It's so good. I mean, it's, I'm I'm sitting it, here like, look, I I watch the four hour cut. Yeah, I have no problem watching <laughs> it. So why why maybe? Hey, I can think of a, I can think of another hour you look, would cut before you cut that. Look, there was an hour in Gone with the Wind I could cut. <laughs> So, yeah. But, now, now this is the only film we've covered on the show that is longer than Gone with the Wind. So there you go. Wow. There, there you go, guys. But because no, that? that that's also like a tie into the ending of the Hobbits, where like not only have they they've gone upon this journey and they've all yeah. succeeded and they survived, but they've gained the respect of pretty much all of Middle yeah. Earth. Yeah, and that's that's a beautiful way to show it. And I love the push in. Like, all four of them are such great characters and they've all gone such great journeys, but we just slowly push in on Elijah Wood as, like, he's the one that really... Even though, he, in a lot of ways, he's sort of the most passive character of the trilogy. Mm. Like, it kind of feels like he's just, like, going about this and, and just, you know, brunting the force of the ring. Everyone else, Pippin, Mary, Sam, they're all sort of more... um, Not passive. What, what's the opposite of passive? I'm now forgetting. Proactive. Proactive. They're very. They're much more proactive characters, and they're saving each other. And but, you know, that doesn't stop the fact that Frodo is the one that did it. He's the one that carried the ring to Mount Doom and destroyed it. He got the job done. He got the job done. So it. It. I love that. That we get that pushing on his face in particular. It's not just like a static on the four hobbits, and then we cut away. It's like it was his journey, just as much, if not more so, than the other hobbits and everyone in, in this whole series. Jack, what was your heart saying? I would say it is, like you said, going back to that the Vietnam <laughs> War flashbacks, it's that shot with Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin. They're in the bar. At the, they're back at the Shire. And everyone around them is having a good time and cheering and drinking and eating and dancing. And they just can't quite 
they have a moment. They just have a quiet moment there that goes back to that bittersweet ending of, oh, mm. things really have changed. There is, there's no real way of going back to the way they were because they've all gone through this, you know, tremendous experience together, many highs and lows. So a big reduction or um, that, or rather a, a retcon, mm. if you will, or, okay. or a creative liberty that Jackson took is in the books. There's actually a very dour sort of ending. That's more. Oh, dour than I know what you're about to say. I read um, about this too. In which uh, it's called the scouring of the shire. Yes. In which uh, I'm glad you mentioned all this. four of them come home to basically their land has been subject to that worn, torn aspect. Um, so this is this is a version of the story where Saruman's still alive. No, well, basically, no. Saruman still dies. Okay, but. Basically, him and and Sauron enact, sent goblins and uh, orcs, and they basically turned. They almost destroyed the Shire completely. Yeah, while they were away. You're right. I did read about this. Um, this is so interesting. I'm glad they got rid of it because it's. This well, is the end of the journey. Yeah, and, it's, and like in book form, you got a couple more chapters of even more like. Yeah, and and the reality is, it's and, that sort of you know plays into the whole ignorance was bliss for the hobbits of the Shire. And, sure. Um, although these four are worn, torn, and know that they were, there was more at stake, right. the rest but of the Shire around them, lived yep. in ignorance. Yep. And that's a big choice to make, to go the complete opposite direction as, as your base material when you're so true to so many other things. Right. But I agree with you. It's a million times more effective in the film context that the characters that we've been following they're the only ones affected yes. by the change in their lives, and that so you can have that shot where they're sitting there and everyone around them is celebratory, but they're not, and like just having that visual contrast in just one shot, I think tells the story a lot better than having like okay here's another twenty minute segue where yes. th- now there's a new problem they have to solve at the Shire, and it it just feels more bleak. Yeah. And I think this is more bittersweet. It kind of balances out better, I think. Good way of phrasing it. Yeah, but I'm glad you mentioned that because I read that and totally forgot about that. A whole, well, like, two chapters or whatever it is. Yeah. So what I'm here for, Jake. I'm glad. Well, Zeke, um, you're here for a lot more than that, I promise. What was your highlight scene? Um, Look, I probably could pick... A very, you know, a very similar scene. I did mention I'm a big fan. An honourable mention would be that that Sam Shelob fight sequence. I feel like it's a good. Oh yeah, for, that's great for Sam, and it's great. Uh, perfect balance of that CGI to um, real world, and it works really well. Yeah. Still looks really good. Um, and there's just everything about that scene using the the Galadriel lights, the evening star light. Um, that's to, a great visual for it, just like holding it out. Yes. Um, big fan of that. Um, I'm probably, I'll probably go with, I mean, one of the two really big war speeches we see. I think the, oh, okay. the Theod, King Theod and Rohirrim, as the sun breaks, mm. sort of looks really cool. But I'll go with the Aragorn. Yep, I think um, that's fair. It enough. is not this day scene, and it has this moment where well, that's another milestone in his returning of the kings sort of yeah. arc, is that he gets to have that speech now. And it's cool. And what I like about that scene is the, the, it's the little things. It's the there's a moment almost where it feels like Aragon might be overwhelmed, and there's a and there's a lingering doubt. And he turns around, and he says to, for Frodo, and then he has that really cool epic charge. But the like you said, the, it comes back to those four <laughs> hobbits 
the first two to charge after are Mary and Pippin, and mm. it has that really cool moment when everyone's running past And they're them. tiny. <laughs> yeah. But it's cool, because it's that it's moment. Awesome, it's the heart, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're um, in it to win it. Yeah, so I'll go with that. I'll go with that scene. Excellent. I like that. Um, so Lord of the Rings is currently out on Netflix and wide release. Mm, stand, Prime, Binge, Paramount, all the good stuff. But go. again, just like the others, only the theatrical versions. You must buy the extended versions, which now that I've seen both, would I recommend the extended editions? I think I would. Yep. I think, I think the pacing really, you really feel it in the last film, but... There are so many, there's so much to the extended versions that you're right. I agree. They just they feel missed in the theatrical yeah. version. You know, the, all the extra stuff with Boromir and the and Faramir and the dad and the, all that stuff in Two Towers, Saruman's death in this one. Mm. There's quite a lot of integral stuff that I I agree. I think you need to see that for the context. So, Absolutely. go for it. Go for that twelve hour binge, guys. Well, hey Jake. Speaking of all mm. those lovely streaming platforms you mentioned, what's <laughs> new to streaming platforms and cinemas near us? Well, the only one of those I mentioned that I think even has anything worth uh, talking about is Netflix's The Fall of the House of Usher, which is the latest horror miniseries for Mike Flanagan in the vein of other shows such as The Haunting of Hill House, Midnight Mass, etc., etc. Mm. Have you watched any of these? No. I, I know a lot of people I, that are huge fans of Haunting them. of Hill House. I've heard mm. people tell me a lot to watch it. And I went and saw Haunting of Venice with Lucinda, and she's watched both of Haunting and Hill House. And what was the other one you just mentioned? Black Mass? Uh, mi- the, the Midnight Mass. Mass. The Midnight Mass, and she loves them. Oh, excellent. So, And she said Haunting in Venice had a lot of that vibe. So Interesting. There you go. Excellent. Well, there you go. That's a new one coming to Netflix. Coming to cinemas. Everyone, move out the way because Tay Tay's back with the Taylor Swift Errors tour. So I guess it's like the two and a half hour video concert. The cultural phenomenon returns. So she performs hit songs in a once in a lifetime concert experience. Now, part part of me actually kind of wants to see this. I don't know why. Why? I don't want to. I don't know. Just. I mean, the Taylor Swift hype is getting. It's getting so big that, like, no. The real reason I want to see it is to, to annoy my sister. But that goes to the point, is that she doesn't want to see this. Because, obviously, this tour has been going on in the US yeah. for ages now. There's just a million TikToks about it. But she's not playing here in Australia until about uh, February or March, whenever it is. But and you guys have tickets, don't you? Well, I, my sister has tickets. Yes, you got tickets but for the, your sister. the problem is she would rather go and see the concert in person before she just watches a video of it. I respect that. I respect, yeah, because of course, why would you just sit there and watch it in cinemas if you're going to see it live a few months yeah. later? I mean, they just announced, what, a WWE premium live event on the way to WrestleMania yeah, in February. Yeah, that's right. I will be absolutely right there getting tickets. There and if, if there was an opportunity to watch that event before seeing it live, I know it's literally a live event that's... Going to right, be but recorded. if you had the option, you would rather just wait and watch it live. Yeah, 100%. it would be worth the experience. I completely get that. So I get, I get her perspective of like, well, why release this now? Especially with shows like Taylor Swift, where they're not like a traditional concert; they're a show. Sure, and they're two different things. There's a, a lot cons- of theatrics. Going a concert, on. Jerry can shout something out, like "Play that song you knew from 30 years ago," and the artist might actually <laughs> play that song. <laughs> Um, song. But those ones but are is more so like controlled yeah. and choreographed that they have the set list. You don't get to change the set list. Yeah. 
So that's what makes it a show, yep. not a concert. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. So I so it's like part of me wants to go and see this just to like annoy her. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Kirstie's not a big Taylor Swift fan, so it's like if she's not dragging me to it, then no one's gonna drag me to it. So I'm probably believe, I'm not gonna see it. Should, I can't believe you want to go see a Taylor Swift thing. Then. I don't know, I just like it's wild. I don't know. And it's the hype seek. Okay. It it consumes all. It's just like the ring. Yeah. The one ring. I I've never jumped on the bandwagon. Fair enough. So it's not for me. And I was I was a a very vocal disliker of, of Miss Americana. Miss Americana. Fair enough. It's a bit different though. Yeah. And that's that's the only notable thing that we've got cooking on the earth. No, we do have a few other things, thankfully. We do have some other documentaries and, okay. and drama pieces. Uh, we have The Crime is Mine, which is a French crime comedy that sees a penniless actress accused of murdering a famous producer. Ooh, Very spicy. Coming exclusively to Luna SX on Friday the 13th, a special screening of the short film Inside Earthship Frio, which is actually a apparently... A 360-degree stereoscopic documentary that looks into an off-the-grid community of squatters and activists in Fremantle. So that's fascinating to me. So it's it's a a big event, or it's a you know it's a theatrical event. It's like an hour and a half long, yeah. but I believe the film's only 11 minutes long, and it it seems like they're going to play him in headsets. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, for people that squat in Fremantle, like Fremantle here. Fremantle. Yes, yes, here from our WA. Wow. So they, that's, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And I tried to do a little more research into it. It is obscure. There is an IMDb page for Inside Earthship Prayer. So that might give a little more context. Mm. There's a Facebook page as well. Um, but that's what I can glean is that it's a short film played through 360 degree stereoscopic footage. Yeah. Did you work on it? Uh, no, shockingly, no. <laughs> I thought I worked on every piece of 360 in, in Perth. But evidently not. Maybe Raz had something to do with it. Who knows? There you go. We shall see. Uh, now, while you're at Luna, you can also watch films such as Slant, which is a darkly comic thriller set in Melbourne, Christmas time, 1999. A career-crazed journalist dredges up secrets of an infamous socialite after her mysterious disappearance. Hmm, interesting. You also got Lie With Me, which sees an author return to his hometown after 35 years, where he bumps into the son of his first love where memories of irresistible attraction return. Mm. Mm. That sounds a bit raunchy. A naughty, naughty. I don't know about that. And finally, playing exclusively at Palace this week, Evicted, a modern romance, is an Australian comedy that follows four housemates on the verge of eviction, trawl through Sydney's dire rental market in search of a new home. That sounds great. <laughs> I love the sound of that. that sounds funny. Uh, a lot of Australian films this week. I like it. Either set in Frio, set in Melbourne, Sydney. We're all over the map, Steve. Just, uh, just in time for us to walk it. Absolutely. <laughs> well said, Jack. Well said. But that's everything coming to cinemas and streaming this week. Okay. Well, switching gears. We're not watching any of those next week on the show, but we do have something in mind, Jake. Mm, we do. Something that's been on our hit list. Oh. But, Jake, what You're are we watching? man. Next week in the show, we're watching, and I can't believe we haven't done this film before yet, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Never ride on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hey, Mom, what do you think? You look like a gangster. 
By the time I grew up, there was 30 billion a year in cargo moving through Idlewild Airport. And believe me, we tried to steal every bit of it. What do you do? I'm in construction. We not Jewish. Mazel tov. For most of the guys, killings got to be accepted. Hey, Henry. Here's an arm. Very funny, guys. Here's a leg. Here's a wing. <laughs> what do you like, the leg or the wing? The true story of Henry Hill, a half-Irish, half-Sillian Brooklyn kid who is adopted by neighbourhood gangsters at an early age and climbs the ranks of the Mafia family. I always wanted to be a gangster. <laughs> so obviously, in preparation for a new Scorsese film coming out very, very, very soon. Very soon, yes. Exciting. We figured, well, hey, look, we've got to get ourselves back in the Scorsese mindset and we're doing a film that, for some Benoit's reason took 248 episodes mm. to get to, but I mean the reason being that we just assumed we'd already done it. Yeah, that seemed to happen a lot with us. <laughs> and obviously, you know, once upon a time we did the Irishman. We did, um, which was the. I was rewatching clips of the Irishman this very morning. There you go. It's awesome. It, it is, is so awesome. It is awesome, and obviously this film is sort of the. Uh, the other bookend, mm. the earlier version of The Irishman, or at least the the other end on the bookshelf. Um, yeah, this is kind of the beginning of a few relationships. I mean, and De Niro and Scorsese had already worked beforehand on things, but is this his first collaboration with Pesci? It's... Oh, isn't Pesci in Raging Bull? Oh, you're right, of course. This is 1990. Oh, and then yes. Casino... Oh, that's 95, isn't it? Yes. Oh no, you are correct. You are correct. But this this is definitely but this is definitely like a combination film. It's also the film that most people I think is probably his most liked film. I think mm. it's definitely the film people think is the coolest, and it's kind of coming at a great time. I'm going to a Great Gatsby gangster themed party this Friday. Oh, so very nice. There you Get go. Get in the theme of it. I love oh, it. Might come in in a pinstripe, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> and tell people you always wanted to be a gangster. I always wanted to be a gangster. Until then, thank you for joining us for a Cinema Sideshow podcast. I was Z. I was Jake. I'll catch you next week with Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas.